This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. The scripture says that he crowns the year with his goodness and his paths drip with abundance. God has crowned the year with his goodness and his paths drip with abundance. And so God has great things in store for us in the year 2019. All we need to do is open our hands and open our hearts to receive them. Now we said that the theme for 2019 is spirit of life. And we're looking for a new baptism in the Holy Spirit in 2019. In 2019, we want to open the windows of heaven and open the doors of our hearts and allow God to pour out a blessing upon us that we don't have room to receive. We believe that there's financial blessing in 2019, but that's not the focus. We're looking for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're believing there's going to be breakthrough in your family in 2019, but that's not the focus. We're looking for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We believe that God is going to bring a breakthrough in your health in 2019, but that's not the focus. We're looking for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in 2019, we we have (coughs) set our sights on heaven, and we're looking heavenward and believing God for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, what we're going to do in, for the first five months of this year is we're going to go all the way through the book of Acts from beginning to end. We're going to go through the book of Acts from beginning to end. And I want us to understand why. The book of Acts is a very important book in the New Testament. You see, the book of Acts was written somewhere between 62 and 65 A.D., probably just before the Apostle Paul was executed during the Neronian persecution. It was written slightly before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and the purpose of the book of Acts in the first century was basically twofold. Now, the thing you must understand about the book of Acts is that it was written by this guy Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And if you go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1, you see that he's he's writing to this man named Theophilus, who probably was a well-to-do person um, uh, in their day and in their time, but he was a Roman, and he had been converted to Christianity. And Luke says that he was writing to him an orderly account so that he might know the certainty of the things that he had been taught. He's basically saying, I know you've been taught a lot of things. I want to put them in order for you. I know you've heard a lot of stuff. I want to put them in order for you. Oftentimes, we have the right truths in our minds and heart, but those truths are not arranged in the right order. And because those truths are not arranged in the right order, they don't have the right effect. Uh, Just because it's written in Scripture doesn't mean that you have it in the right order in your heart. Uh, Judas went and killed himself. Go and do likewise. Both of those are versions and both of those are verses in the Bible, but it's not good advice, yeah. <laughs> right? And so, and so, uh, uh, you got to have the Word of God in the right order. So Luke writes to Theophilus and says, "The reason I'm writing to you is I want to organize the truth in your heart, because when the truth comes into order in your heart, suddenly it can begin to have its proper effect in your life." And so he begins by writing the Gospel of Luke. Now, prior to the writing of the Gospel of Luke, two Gospels had been written. The Gospel of Mark, first and foremost, which was the first Gospel, and then the Gospel of Matthew was written as well. Um, And then secondly, there was a group, a body of letters that were being circulated through the churches, which were the Pauline letters. 
So you basically had, in the early church, in the mid-first century, you had two groups of letters being circulated through the church. The first was called the Gospel, and the second was called the Apostle. The Gospel and the Apostle. The book of Acts connects the Gospel and the Apostle by providing us with a history of the early church, and included in that history is the conversion experience of Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, the calling to the Gentile mission, and his exploits on the mission field. So now when the, the letters of Paul come to your church, you have a referent. You understand who this guy Paul is, what he has done, and what God has done in his life. And so the Gospel of Luke provided a kind of, I'm sorry, the, the book of Acts provided a historical orientation that helped us to understand the link between the gospel and the apostle. The second uh, purpose that the book of Acts fulfilled in the first century is that it provided an apologetic for the Christian faith. By the mid-first century, the Christian faith was already very prevalent and widespread. This group of early believers had gone all over the Greco-Roman world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel was widespread, but it was everywhere spoken against. And there was this popular idea that this Christianity thing was nothing more than a rebel sect. I mean, after all, the founder of the Christian faith was executed by the Romans as a criminal. And he received the worst form of execution that you could receive. Being crucified, that was like getting the death penalty. That was like the electric chair or lethal injection. I mean, if you can imagine people that were following a guy who had died in the electric chair, and they say, this is our Lord and this is our Savior, but he was executed in the electric chair. That's what it was like socially, politically, for the members of the early church to declare that they had faith in this guy, Jesus, who was executed in the worst possible way by the Romans. And so what you find in both the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, number one, is there's this clear presentation of the life of Jesus Christ that indicates that he actually was not a rebel. He had not rebelled against the state. He had not tried to raise up a rebellion. He simply preached a way of life that was different. And he also preached a set of hopes and expectations for the future that were different. And because of it, he was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. And what became clear is that it was the religious leaders, not even the Romans who wanted to crucify Jesus, but the religious leaders of his day. That the persecution was not even coming from Rome, it was coming from religion. Then you get to the book of Acts and you find that this Christian faith, which in chapter 17, I believe verse 6 or verse 7, uh, they come into the, a particular city and the people there say, these people who have turned the world upside down have now come here. Everywhere the gospel went, there were riots and there were uprising and there was all of this. It was chaotic. It was not like, let's plant a little church here and let's, let's create a website and a Facebook page and invite your friends to come and you, know, you get a little ticket when you come and a little gift for being a first-time visitor and let's go to Starbucks and you know, have appointments and join a home group. No, I mean, it was crazy. It was the, you know how they started churches in the early church? Some, some apostle would come into your city, go to the synagogue where the Jewish people were meeting to worship, and he would get up and preach, Jesus is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. He'd get thrown out of the synagogue. He'd go down the street and open up and start meeting in the home, and a bunch of people would follow him from the synagogue. So, I mean, literally, it was like church splits. I mean, that's how they started the early church. There was a group called the God-fearers, and the God-fearers were Roman citizens, Gentiles, 
who were attracted to the God of Israel. They knew that the God of Israel was the real God, but they did not want to become Jewish proselytes because it would have required them to be circumcised with no anesthetic as an adult. So you can imagine, you know, like if that was the bar for salvation, you know what I mean? It's like, and, it's, and somebody responds to that altar call, oh, they really got saved. You know what I mean? Like there's a real work of the spirit. So these God fears, they would come and they would hang out, but they wouldn't go all the way with it. Well, Paul would come and say, salvation is not through circumcision. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And the God fears would go, I'm with him. <laughs> and the God fears would follow him down the street and he would open up a church. And that's how the church at Corinth was started. The church at Thessalonica. Uh, that's how the church at Ephesus, Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, but like all of these different places where Paul planted churches. That's how he planted his churches. That was so you can imagine it was very contentious whenever the, uh, one of the apostles would go into a city and start a church. There, it was talked bad about. It was, it was called all kinds of names. It was hotly spoken against, and it was called a rebellion. And so you read through the book of Acts, and what you find is that the believers actually were very loving. They were not rebellious. They weren't trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. They were not a threat even to the Jewish leaders. They actually honored even the history of Israel, and they honored the faith of Israel. They saw themselves as the fulfillment of the faith of Israel, not as overturning the faith of Israel or doing away with the law and the prophets, but they saw Jesus as the Messiah and as the fulfillment of everything that was written about in the law and the prophets. So these were kind of the twofold functions of the book of Acts in the early church or in the, the first century especially. But what we find as modern day believers in Jesus Christ is that those two functions are not necessarily important to us. I mean, how many of you like have this deep question in your heart, who was Paul? And why should I read his letter? You know what I mean? It's like, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you just assume, like, you've just heard about this guy, Paul. Even if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you heard of this dude, Paul, and you know that he wrote a lot of the letters in the New Testament, and it, you just kind of take that as face value. We just kind of receive that as face value. And secondly, none of us really see Christianity as this rebellious thing that's trying to overthrow the U.S. government, right? We see it as much different. And so the function of the book of Acts for us is to provide us with a blueprint for understanding the nature of the local church. The function of the book of Acts for us is to provide us with a blueprint for understanding the intended nature of the early church. You see, we call ourselves a church, but we don't stop to acknowledge that when we call ourselves a church, we're using the same name that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 16 when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. We just assume that we can use that same word that Jesus used. We call ourselves a church and we, we, don't, we don't often stop to acknowledge that we're using the same word that they used again and again and again in the book of Acts. And we can simply assume that we're a church because we call ourselves a church without ever stopping to ask the question, do we actually have the marks of a church? Do we actually qualify as a church? Or are we something less than the church? And so we turn to the book of Acts to get a picture of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ, how the church of Jesus Christ functioned, and what that means for us. And as we read it, stuff should be stirring in our hearts going, yes, Lord, you know, like Emily fell apart up here. Why? Because she read that and she's like, Lord, not just the first century, but the last century. 
not just the day of Pentecost, but January 6, 2019. Like, yeah. Not just yesterday, but today. Yeah. It's not just about that church. We want that in this church. Yeah. And that's the heart with which we should read the book of Acts. Yeah. Our heart should open to say, do it again, God. Yeah. Do it again. We want to see that again. And what we find over and over again consistently throughout the book of Acts is that the book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit. The hallmark of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, in the second century, the book of Acts was retitled the Acts of the Apostles. And, and apostles plural. And the reason it was titled the Acts of the Apostles plural was because there was a second century guy named Martian who claimed that Paul was the only true apostle of Jesus Christ and that all the other apostles had misunderstood him and misread him and they excised them from their movement and they just took Paul and says, this is it. They just took the letters of Paul and said, this is our Bible. And they retitled Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, to demonstrate that Paul wasn't the only apostle. There was also Peter and, and John and Bartholomew and, and Simon the Zealot and Judas and Alfie, the son of Alphaeus and, and, and Bartholomew. I said him already. And, and, and all of these other guys. There were actually 11. And then at the end of Acts chapter 1, there's Matthias who's added to the 11 so that they become 12. And there's this demonstration throughout the book of Acts that there were many apostles. And in actuality, before we get to the end of the book of Acts, there's other apostles. There's even women apostles. Did you know that there are women apostles listed in the book of Acts? We'll get to that. Keep that in the back of your mind. We'll come to that. Yeah, I'm going to stir up some trouble in the next few months. Come on, somebody. Now, so the book of Acts for us functions as an apologetic for the power of the Holy Spirit. And we, this is such a clear theme in the book of Acts. An apologetic for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And in every age of Christian history, the book of Acts has been used by God to call the church back to its true center. And the true center of the church is not politics. It is not some social construct. The true center of the church is not even fellowship with one another. The true center of the church is the life-giving presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we start the book of Acts here, and Jesus is standing with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he's giving them his final instructions before he departs from them. And being assembled together with him, with them, it says in verse 4, he'd commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. This is the last thing Jesus says. Don't leave Jerusalem. Do not depart from Jerusalem. They're like, what do you want us to do now? I want you to go to Jerusalem and don't leave. And he says, but wait for the promise of the Father. The, the last command Jesus gives them, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. The last command Jesus gives his disciples is to wait. But to wait for something specific. And then he reminds them, do you remember when John the Baptist introduced me all the way back at the beginning of my ministry? They're like, yeah, I remember it. Jesus said, what did he say? Well, he said, you know, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one coming after me who's greater than I. I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandals. 
He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus says, exactly. You remember that? John told you what to expect. He told you that he baptized you with water, but that the one coming after him would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Isn't it interesting that all the way at the inauguration, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, what we are told to expect about him when God introduces him to us is that he will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Now the word baptize is the Greek word baptizo. It's become a technical term. I believe it should just be translated. The word just means to immerse. If you get in a bathtub and you completely submerge yourself underwater, that's baptizo. You've simply immersed yourself. It says he will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. He will immerse you. He will submerge you in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, now go to Jerusalem and wait for that. No next step. Don't start forming home groups yet. Don't start breaking up ministries in the church yet. No separation of responsibility. Don't, don't, don't start trying to come up with a structure or a plan. Don't do anything yet, not until the Holy Spirit comes. Your number one priority, the number one, what makes us a church, is giving priority to the Holy Spirit. Making a decision that we can't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. Yeah. Now, what does it mean? Why does Jesus say wait for the Holy Spirit to come? What, he actually, what we're actually waiting for is not some ecstatic experience. That's not what he says. Go wait in Jerusalem until you start shaking. Right. Right. <laughs> Go wait in Jerusalem until you fall down. That's not what he's saying. Yeah. The, the, the Holy Spirit is the power of God that enables us to do by God's power what we cannot do by our power. When he says wait for the Holy Spirit, what he's simply saying is, don't try this by yourself. You will have a huge responsibility, and you cannot fulfill it by your own power. Make a decision not to try to live by your own strength and by your own power. Make a decision to wait for God's power to enable you to do what you cannot do by your power. By and large, contemporary believers in Jesus Christ live every day by our own power and simply come to church to pay God occasional homage. We come to church to say, God, you're really cool, but I got this. We look at our lives and go, I got this. Until we hit a crisis point, and then all of a sudden, we need the Lord. And we forget that a crisis is not the moment that you begin to need God. It's the moment that you become aware that you need God. You ever read John 15? Jesus said, I'm the vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears fruit he prunes it so that it can bear more fruit, but every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he plucks it out and throws it away. And then Jesus says, apart from me, you can do a few things. We, we think we can do some things without him. But Jesus says, apart from me, you can do zilch, nada. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing that you can do. You need to get a revelation of that. Yes. Because it just feels like I can do, I got this. 
I mean, I can wash dishes, but ask Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence made a decision. I'm not even going to wash dishes without him. And Brother Lawrence washed dishes under such an anointing of the Holy Spirit that people came from all over the world to watch him wash dishes. You ever heard of that guy? You never heard of that dude? Go home and Google Brother Lawrence. He washed dishes. He was a dishwasher. And he started praying, Lord, anoint me to wash dishes. I want to wash dishes in the Spirit. And he would worship and he would pray as he washed dishes all day long. And the Holy Spirit filled the room where he was washing dishes so, so much so that people came from all over the world to watch him wash dishes. Why? Because he took it seriously. When Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, he simply made a decision. I'm not going to do anything without you. I'm going to seek the powerful presence of God in everything that I do. Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem. Do not pass go. Do not collect $100. $200. Wait in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to underline in your Bibles, if you have a Bible, the word wait. Or just underline it in your mind is fine too. Wait. What did he tell them to do? Wait. Did he tell them to pray? He just said wait. What did he tell them to do? Just wait. I talk to a lot of believers who are waiting. You talk to single believers, I'm still waiting. I know he's coming. And I'm waiting. You talk to broke believers, I'm waiting. Waiting for God's blessing. I know he's going to come. He's going to bless me. And I'm waiting. The problem is most believers who are waiting for something from God are waiting passively. Not actively. There's actually evidence that the members of the early church in this group, they got a revelation that the kind of waiting that Jesus was calling them to was not a passive waiting but an active waiting. In verse 4, the scripture said, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And then you go down a few verses, and it says that when they gathered in the upper room, they continued steadfastly together in prayer. Jesus said, wait. And they went into an upper room, and they said, here's how we wait. And they started to pray. Prayer, the essence of prayer, from the very beginning of the book of Acts, what we discover is that the essence of prayer is an active waiting upon the Lord. The essence of prayer is not a passive waiting, but an active waiting upon the Lord. Because I talk to a lot of believers who just have this attitude, like, you know what, God can do whatever he wants. So whatever God wants to do, he's just going to do in my life. You know, if he wants to bless me, he's going to bless me. And if he wants to take something from me, he's just going to take it from me. You don't spend two minutes a day in prayer. But you're like, I'm just waiting on the Lord. I'm just waiting on the Lord. I'm just, you know, one day the Lord's going to show up in my life and he's going to do something powerful. I'm just waiting for God. God is just, he's going to come one of these days. God can do whatever he wants to do. How about the gifts of the spirit? You know what? If God wants to give me that gift, he'll give me that gift. I'm just, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for Jesus. 
I'm waiting for him to fix my marriage. I'm waiting for him to save my children. I'm waiting for him to fix my health. I'm waiting. But you don't have two prayers to rub together. You haven't spent eight seconds in prayer in the last month except to say, Lord, bless this food which we're about to receive. A prayer that he couldn't answer anyway because that food is so full of stuff that'll kill you. <laughs> That's one of the most religious things. We have a pile of garbage. Lord, bless this food. And the Lord's like, how? How am I going to bless that? You better hope I don't bless it because if he blesses it, he makes it prosper. And if that prospers in your system, you dead. <laughs> I'm talking to myself this morning. <laughs> That's okay, but I'm praying. But the prayer I'm praying instead of, Lord, bless this food, I'm praying, Lord, help me not to want this food anymore. <laughs> That's a different prayer. Mm. They continued steadfastly in prayer. They said, he told us not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise we interpret that to mean go into a room and pray for the promise for how long? Until it comes. To wait upon the Lord means to make the decision, I'm going to pray and seek his face until he comes. How long is it going to take? Till he comes. Because the first lie is that Passive waiting is all we need. Mm. Yeah. Just sit around and just wait and God will do stuff. Don't worry, he's coming, he'll do stuff. The second lie is that active waiting actually changes God's time frame. Mm. Amen. The second lie is that fervent prayer actually moves God to do what he wasn't going to do. Mm. When we get to Acts chapter 2 verse 1, what does it say? And when the day of Pentecost was fully come. It does not say, and when they had prayed hard enough. Right, 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 right. And when they had prayed long enough. It does not say that the Lord was looking down from heaven going, they're not praying yet. That one is looking on her iPhone. <laughs> that one's mind keeps wandering. I'm just waiting for them to pray hard enough. I'm waiting for them to pray long enough. It's every time you pray and you don't get an answer to your prayer, the devil is there to lie to you and say, see, there's the problem. You're not praying hard enough. You're not praying long enough. See, God doesn't hear your prayers because you're not holy enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not spiritual enough. You're not a good enough Christian. So, and, and what, why does the devil lie to you that way? Because what's he trying to get you to do? Trying to get you to quit. The weakest Christian can pray effectively. The newest, weakest, most immature Christian can pray effectively if you just keep praying. Even if you don't know what you're doing, if you just keep doing it. God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to seek your face. Go into a room and close the door and talk to God. Open up your Bible and just start reading. From I, had a friend, I, I have a friend, he's a pastor now, but when he first got saved, he was, um, let's say he was really rough around the edges and he told me about these prayer meetings he would have by himself where he'd read the Bible and he'd be praying, but he was kind of, he, you know, he had some of the world in him still. And, and even when he was praying, he'd be cussing. <laughs> he'd be like, and Lord, I just need you to effing come and just, you know what I mean? He's like dropping F-bombs in his prayer. You know what I mean? It's like, and I was like, that's awesome. 
I mean, not like don't go home and do that intentionally. That's that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that's where he was at. He just prayed from where he was at. It's, see, this lie the devil will drop in your head and say, prayer is for the, the spiritual elite. It's for the spiritual professionals. It's for those who know what they're doing and know how to do it. And no, it's just for anybody who wants to get to know God and, and wants to receive more of the Spirit of God. It's simply a decision to say, I'm going to lift up my head, I'm going to talk to God, and I'm going to keep talking to Him until He comes. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, meaning when it was time, the time that God had set, had they prayed harder, it wouldn't have happened a day earlier. When it was time. There's some stuff we must resist the Panina spirit. You heard of this guy, Elkanah? In 1 Samuel chapter 1, he had two wives. The first was named Panina. The second was named Hannah. Panina was one of them real fertile women. Elkanah looked at her and smiled, and she got pregnant. It's like my brother and his wife. They got kids. They're ki they got kids coming out of kids. I mean, it's, it's like a conveyor belt. Just oh here God. comes another baby. He writes her a, a, a card and she gets pregnant. And then me and Sonny, 18 years and we got one. That's okay, I don't need five. <laughs> I thank the Lord. <laughs> one is enough. <laughs> Panina was real fruitful. But Hannah was barren. And Panina persecuted Hannah. Panina, the fruitful one, was always talking to Hannah going, how come you ain't got no kids? God probably is not as pleased with you as he's pleased with me. Look at me, I'm fruitful. The Panina spirit is that spirit of pride that causes fruitful people in the Lord to look down upon people who are less fruitful. And we forget that if you read the, the book called the Bible, you find that God has a preference for the barren womb. That whenever God was getting ready to do something important in salvation history, he did not look for the most fruitful person he could find. He looked for a barren womb. Sometimes the unfruitful one is the Hannah who in her old age is going to have one kid named Samuel wow. who's going to change the world. Wow. Panina, it was easy. There's some folks you look at in the body of Christ, and it's easy. As soon as they start praying, the tears start coming. Some of y'all were watching Emily up here fall apart and thinking, I wish I could do that. that how come that never happens to me? Just reading the Bible and falling, ooh, falling apart, crying, oh, Lord. That don't happen to me. I read it. I'm like, I don't see nothing. <laughs> You feel that? Nope, I don't feel nothing. <laughs> Maybe you're just the Hannah. The only difference, and I'm not saying Emily's the Panina. She's a Hannah too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not speaking that over none, none of y'all. The point I'm making is 
every one of us has some area in our lives where fruitfulness is easy yeah. and some area in our lives where we just feel barren. That's so yeah. And do not think that because you've got an area of barrenness in your life, that God is not pleased with you, that there's something wrong with you, that you're less fruitful than somebody else, because God always looks for those barren places and those barren wombs and says, he brought Isaac out of a barren womb. He brought Jacob out of a barren womb. He brought Samuel out of a barren womb. He brought John the Baptist out of a barren womb. And he brought Jesus out of a barren womb. God prefers the barren womb. And that's why Paul said, I glory in my weaknesses because where I am weak, then he is strong. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, when it was God's time, I'm telling you by the word of the Lord that God has a divinely appointed time to pour out his spirit upon us in a measure that you have no clue. It goes beyond what you can imagine. And it's not, God is not simply looking for us to learn how to pray harder or to pray longer or to pray uh, more effectively or more fervently. He's simply looking for those who would go into the upper room and say, Lord, even if I don't know what I'm doing, I'm going to seek you till you come. I'm going to seek you until you come. You see, what God is actually looking for are his paparazzi. You know what a, a paparazzi does, right? They camp out outside the house of a famous person. And they watch that house intently. Because I know if I stay here for long enough, you're going to come out of this house at some point. And when you come out, I'm going to be waiting. I know you're coming at some point, but when you come, I'm going to be waiting. And so I'm going to stand at my watch. I'm going to give no sleep to my eyes. I'm going to focus my lenses and make sure my camera is ready. I'm going to make sure there's film in my camera and the battery is new. Because when you come out, I'm, I'm going to get a glimpse of you in the window. Gotcha. I'm going to get a glimpse of you taking out the trash. Gotcha. Listen, God is looking for those who would stand outside the doors of heaven and say, I'm going to watch until that door opens because I know you're going to come out of that door and you're going to meet with me. But the difference is that God is not running from his paparazzi. He's running to his paparazzi. He's running to the ones who look to him and say, we're going to seek you until you come. You ever heard of the wise and the foolish virgins? Matthew 25. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins. Five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. Now this is what would happen in the ancient world, especially in, in the first century in Jesus' day. When there was a wedding, the friends of the bridegroom would wait. They would prepare the bride and they would wait. And the bridegroom, the groom, he would show up unannounced. It would be within this period of time, anywhere within this two week or however long it was period of time, he would show up. And if he showed up and they weren't ready, they'd get locked out of the feast. So you had to be ready and waiting for the bridegroom to come. When the cry went out, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. You better have oil in your lamp. But there were five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. These were the attendants of the bride. 
And the five wise virgins said, I'm going to fill my lamp with oil. I'm going to trim the wick. So as soon as I hear the call, behold, the bridegroom cometh. I'm going to light my lamp and go out to meet him. And we're ready to party like it's 1999. But the foolish virgin said, ah, I'll do it later. They were procrastinators, spiritual procrastinators. I'll pray later. They were passive waiters. The difference between the foolish virgins and the wise virgins was that the wise virgins were actively waiting and the foolish virgins were passively waiting. Both believed that the bridegroom was coming, but only one group was actually ready when he came. While I do not believe that our prayers can influence God's divine timetable. While I fully believe that God will do what he has determined to do in his time, I do believe that sometimes God delays that time because not enough of us are ready to receive him. I do believe that sometimes God looks down at the church and goes, yeah, I was going to come today, but only five of them are ready. And this is going to go right over the heads of 95%. I'll give them a little bit more time to wake up and to get ready. They continued steadfastly in prayer. They continued steadfastly in prayer. This year, I believe God wants to break the hindrances of prayer off of you. You know, there's been a lot of witchcraft working against you. How many of you have experienced this, that every time you try to pray, you just feel this resistance, like, like a weight on you, something that's saying, just stop it, it's not doing any good, you might as well just quit. Just. How many of you felt that? Just lift your hand if you felt that. It's pretty common. Like in your heart, you desire, I just want to pray. Like, I wish I could just spend time with God in prayer. You know what that is? That's witchcraft that's working against you. It's lies of the devil that are speaking in your ear, telling you that you're not powerful, telling you that God doesn't hear you, telling you that your prayers are ineffective, telling you that it's not going to do any good, that you might as well give your attention to something else. Some of you, even in your heart, you've just intended to pray. Like you want, like you really desire it. But you can't, you can't seem to do it. And I know, you know, you, you, you might say, well, I wish I had the time. But you know that that's just a foul excuse. Yeah. I mean, you got time. You got, you got between four and six hours a day to just look at your iPhone. <laughs> you ever put that app on to show your screen time? Yeah. I mean, literally, I spent this much time today just looking at my phone and just doing this. What it actually is, is the work of the enemy deep in your heart, trying to dissuade you from seeking the face of God, trying to convince you that it's not going to do any good. If there's anything we need to break through this year, it's that lie of the devil. That lie of the devil. Ten days. That's how long that prayer meeting lasted. Ten days. They went into a room and closed the door 
And they said, we're going to obey Jesus. We're not coming out until the Holy Spirit comes. Yeah. Number one, they did not know how long that was going to last. Jesus did not tell them, it's going to take 10 days. He just said, wait. And number two, they did not know what that was going to look like. Jesus didn't tell them, here's how you'll know when the Holy Spirit's come. You're going to see fire, you're going to hear wind, and then you're going to be talking in a different language. They had no clue what to expect. They had no clue how long they had to wait, and they had no clue what to expect. They just knew we're supposed to pray. That's a great place for us to start this year. What's it going to look like when God comes this year? I have no clue. What's he going to do? Honestly, I don't know. I'm not going to give you a list of things that God said this year. He's going to give us this and he's going to give us that. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know he's coming. Yeah. I know he's coming. And secondly, how long do we have to pray before he actually comes? I don't know. I don't know. But I know what he's looking for in us is active waiting. Active waiting. What did the psalmist say? We lift up our eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of a slave look to the hand of his master, that image of a slave just watching the hand of his master, waiting for his master to go, and he's going there. And he's going there. As the eyes of a slave look to the hand of his master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress. She's just watching the hand of her mistress, waiting for her to go. And she comes. And she goes, bring me that. And she brings it. So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Prayer is simply the means by which we look to the Lord our God. And every passage of scripture that speaks about waiting is actually talking about praying. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. What it means is they that pray shall renew their strength. They shall mount it with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and shall not faint. How about Psalm chapter 27, verse 14? Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. What does it mean to wait? It means to pray. It's active waiting, not passive waiting. Wait on the Lord. It means to pray. Seek the face of God. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. God is looking for us to learn how to wait upon him this year, how to sit in his presence and wait. And I know this, you know, this this is not like, three steps to your miracle and, and five steps to your breakthrough and, and 15 steps to your, you know, you know getting a, a, a new job and finding a wife and, and, you know, this kind of American dream Christianity where all the church is supposed to do is point us toward the American dream and, and how to live your best life now and, and get the stuff you want and maximize your moment. That's not what it's about. It's about waiting on the Lord and acknowledging that what God has for you, you can't even imagine what it is that he has in store for you. It's greater than you could ever ask or imagine. It's greater than you could ever ask or imagine. It might not look anything like what you thought it was going to look like. It might take a form that's completely other than what you anticipated. God is going to surprise you this year. He's going to blow you away. But what he does is not necessarily going to affirm your desire. Sometimes God says, I want to give you the desires of your heart, but first I've got to show you that you got the wrong desires in your heart. I want to give you the true desires of your heart, and the first thing I've got to do is break some false desires and show you you really don't want that thing that you think you want. Yeah. Come on. Amen. 
So what can we do? We can wait upon the Lord. I've been waiting upon the Lord in this city for 15 years. But you know the one decision I made in the beginning and the one prayer I prayed, God, do not let me get jaded. Do not allow me to become jaded and disillusioned. The only claim to fame I have is I'm still waiting. I'm still looking. I'm still believing. I'm still hoping. I'm still trusting. I'm still seeking. Let it be said of me 30 years from now, he's still seeking. Even if I haven't seen what my eyes desire to see, let it be said of me that I'm still looking to the Lord, that I'm still believing, that I'm still trusting, that what God has in store for me is greater than what I could have imagined. Even if my hopes and dreams come to nothing, let it be said that he's still trusting in the Lord and waiting upon him, not leaning on his own understanding. Thank God for Zachariah and Elizabeth, who in their old age, even though God never gave them a child, but in their old age, they were still waiting. They were still hoping. They were still looking to the Lord. Why? Because God had sovereignly ordained that in their old age, he would give them John the Baptist. What if they had quit looking when they were 50 and never had a kid and said, you know what? Forget this, man. I thought God would give us a kid. We served him. We gave our whole lives to him, and he didn't give us a kid. Man, forget this, man. I'm out of here. We never would have had John the Baptist. But the reason we had John the Baptist is because there was an elderly couple that says, we're still waiting. We're still looking to the Lord. And even though it doesn't look like what we thought it was going to look like, we're still looking to the Lord. Why? Because I'm not wedded to an outcome. I'm wedded to the God of the outcome. What's it going to look like? You must, first and foremost, surrender your desire to control the outcome. And so much of the process of prayer is the process of surrendering my need to control the outcome. Surrendering the outcome to God. Surrendering my desire to control the outcome. Let God control the outcome. Let God be the one who gives the increase. Let him determine the end from the beginning. What I find as I walk with him is that there's stuff I thought he would spare me from that he allows me to walk through. And there's stuff I thought he would allow me to walk through that he spares me from. There's stuff I thought that he would give me that he doesn't give me. And stuff I thought that he would never give me that he gives me. Why? Because he's God. And I'm not. (laughs) Trials that I was hoping He would prevent me from having to endure. But he says, nope, you're going to endure this one. And stuff that I was sure I was going to have to endure, that he says, nope, I'm taking that one away. Why? Because he's God. He knows the end from the beginning. And today all God is looking for is for us to surrender our disillusionment. Surrender our jadedness. And break free from the lies of the devil that stop you from seeking the face of God by telling you how powerless you are. Here's one of the things the devil does. As soon as you start praying, he starts throwing your sins in your face. Oh, God's going to hear you. 
after you done did this and you did that and you did this and you did that? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen and is even at God's right hand and makes intercession for the saints. You know what, devil? Yeah, I know I've done some stuff. But I'm going to fall on the mercy of God anyway. I'm going to seek him anyway. I'm not going to succumb to the lie of the devil that tells me my prayers are powerless and ineffective. I'm going to keep hoping. I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to keep trusting. And I'm going to keep walking. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we lift up our hearts to you, and as we lift up our eyes to you, I pray that you would set us free from every hindrance of the devil that would prevent us from praying. Lord, if there's one priority of Satan, it's to stop your people from praying. If there's one assignment of Satan over this house, it's to prevent us from being a praying church. If there's one concerted lie of the devil that he speaks to believers, it's your prayers are powerless. You might as well not even pray because it's not doing any good. Father, we silence that lie right now. In the name of Jesus, we silence that lie. We break it right now. We break that lie right now. In the name of Jesus, we speak to every heart and to every mind. Your prayers are powerful. Your prayers are powerful. Your prayers are powerful. I don't care if you don't know how to pray. You simply lift up your heart and mind and say, God, here I am. Jesus, here I am. I'm seeking your face. To guide me into all truth. Show me what the truth is, Jesus. I'm seeking your face. I'm coming to you. Show me your face. Open my eyes and let me see. Give me a spirit of wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of you. Give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation, Jesus. I want to know you more. I'm going to seek you till you come. Holy Spirit, I need you. I'm tired of living by my own power and living by my own strength. Holy Spirit, I need you. I need you. I don't want to live. I don't want to even do. I don't even want to wash dishes on my own anymore. I want to wash dishes under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, I need you to come. Jesus, we need you to come and make us the church make us the church without the holy spirit we're not even the church jesus we need you to come jesus we need you to come we lift up our eyes to you to you whose throne is in heaven as the eyes of a slave look to the hand of his master as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress so our eyes look to the lord our god until he has mercy on us have mercy on us oh god come and visit us oh god come and rest upon us oh god come and dwell with us oh god come in